This is Medieval Death Trip for Saturday, September 30th, 2023, episode 102, concerning the occult career of Pope Sylvester II. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Last episode, we heard a brief account from the Chronicle of Melrose of Pope Sylvester II, born Gerbertus of Oriac or Gebert d'Oriac, who allegedly owed his rise through the ecclesiastical ranks to a pact with the devil, a deal he attempted to escape on his deathbed by having his own hands and feet cut off as infernal offerings. Today, we're going to take a closer look at that story. Let's start by expanding on the bare bones of what the Melrose Chronicle presented in its little annal entry for the year 1005. A fuller version of what has come to be known as the Dark Legend of Gerbert is found in William of Malmesbury's Gesta Regum Anglorum, or Deeds of the Kings of the English, which we last heard from for the story of the Witch of Berkeley in episode 97. William is writing in 1125, so well over a century after the events he's describing, Exactly where William got this story is an issue we'll take up later, but suffice it to say, it is not from eyewitnesses. To set up some historical context for the story, its opening episode takes us to 10th century Spain, or more accurately, 10th century Iberia, uh, just to make it clear we're not talking about a political entity or nation, because that Spain is a good ways off, uh, either in the future or perhaps looking backward to the old Roman province of Hispania in the past. William gives us a very abridged history of the Iberian Peninsula in the early Middle Ages, uh, where he mentions the Aryan kingdom of Hispania, which was the remnants of a larger Visigothic kingdom that covered southern France and the Iberian Peninsula from the 5th century into the 6th. The main word I want to clarify and diffuse here is Aryan, because that's Aryan spelled A-R-I-A-N, not the one with a Y, and it refers to the Christian sect named after the 3rd century Egyptian presbyter Arius and deemed heretical at the First Council of Nicaea in 325, uh, which remained one of the major schisms in the late classical to early medieval church. The chief heretical belief of Arianism was that in the Trinity, the Son was not co-equal with the Father, but created by the Father, uh, before the beginning of time, so still a divinity present from before creation, but all the same, less eternal than and subordinate to the Father. And, of course, Orthodox Trinitarian belief, the one that became the Catholic belief after Nicaea, is that all three members of the Trinity are equal in status and equally eternal. They are the same essence and the same divinity. Because once you start saying that the Son was created by another divinity, then it starts sounding dangerously close to polytheism or Gnosticism, though I'm sure many a rabbi would consider even Orthodox Trinitarianism to be at least flirting with polytheism. Uh, My own thought is that I kind of feel like the Arians have a point, isn't it? sort of baked into the very terms father and son that one proceeds from the other? How can you have an only begotten son if that son is co-eternal with you? Uh, When did the begetting happen? Anyway, none of that really has much to do with today's text, other than in a general theme of how the Western Catholic Church perceived other religious traditions as dangerous magic. Because, of course, The Gothic kingdoms of Spain are conquered in the 8th century by the Umayyad Caliphate, bringing Spain under Muslim control. And, as I briefly discussed in my little sidebar about the etymology of the name Chernobyl way back at the end of episode 24, how Edward put his mother to the ordeal, there was a medieval Christian tradition of portraying Muslims as demonic and magical. One other quick gloss for you. Right at the start, William of Malmesbury references the double path of Pythagoras, which is the idea of a moment in a young person's life when one selects their future life and conduct, a key fork in the road where one's life path gets set. So we'll see young Gerbert make his choice. We're joining William's history around the year 999, when Gerbert becomes Pope Sylvester II, 
but then we're going to immediately jump back in time to Gilbert's youth. So, here is the text, as translated by J.A. Giles. After the death of Pope John, Gregory succeeded, after whom came John XVII, then Sylvester, also called Gerbert, about whom it will not be absurd, in my opinion, if I commit to writing those facts which are generally related about him. Born in Gaul, from a lad he grew up a monk at Fleury. Afterwards, when he arrived at the double path of Pythagoras, either disgusted at a monastic life or seized by lust of glory, he fled by night into Spain chiefly designing to learn astrology and other sciences of that description from the Saracens. Spain, formerly for many years possessed by the Romans, in the time of the Emperor Honorius fell under the power of the Goths. The Goths were Arians down to the days of St. Gregory, when that people were united to the Catholic Church by Leander, Bishop of Seville, and by King Ricarid, brother of Herman Gildas, whom his father slew on Easter night for professing the true faith. To Leander succeeded Isidore, celebrated for learning and sanctity, whose body, purchased for its weight in gold, Aldephonsus, king of Galicia, in our times conveyed to Toledo. The Saracens, who had subjugated the Goths, being conquered in their turn by Charles the Great, lost Galicia and Lusitania, the largest provinces of Spain, but to this day they possess the southern parts. As the Christians esteem Toledo, so do they hold Hispalis, which in common they call Seville, to be the capital of the kingdom, there practicing divinations and incantations after the usual mode of that nation. Gerbert then, as I have related, coming among these people, satisfied his desires. There he surpassed Ptolemy with the astrolabe, and Alcandreas in astronomy, and Julius Firmicus in judicial astrology. There he learned what the singing and the flight of birds portended, there he acquired the art of calling up spirits from hell. In short, whatever, hurtful or salutary, human curiosity has discovered. There is no necessity to speak of his progress in the lawful sciences of arithmetic and astronomy, music and geometry, which he imbibed so thoroughly as to show they were beneath his talents, and which, with great perseverance, he revived in Gaul, where they had for a long time been wholly obsolete. Being certainly the first who seized on the abacus from the Saracens, he gave rules which are scarcely understood even by laborious computers. He resided with a certain philosopher of that sect, whose goodwill he had obtained, first by great liberality, and then by promises. The Saracen had no objection to sell his knowledge. He frequently associated with him, would talk with him of matters at times serious, at others trivial, and lend him books to transcribe. There was, however, one volume containing the knowledge of his whole art, which he could never by any means entice him to lend. In consequence, Gerbert was inflamed with an anxious desire to obtain this book at any rate, for, as Ovid says, we ever press more eagerly towards what is forbidden, and that which is denied is always esteemed most valuable. Trying, therefore, the effect of entreaty, he besought himself for the love of God and by his friendship, offered him many things and promised him more. When this failed, he tried a nocturnal stratagem. He plied him with wine, and with the help of his daughter, who connived at the attempt through the intimacy which Gerbert's attentions had procured, stole the book from under his pillow and fled. Waking suddenly, the Saracen pursued the fugitive by the direction of the stars, in which art he was well versed. The fugitive, too, looking back and discovering his danger by means of the same art, hid himself under a wooden bridge which was near at hand, clinging to it and hanging in such a manner as neither to touch the earth nor water. In this manner, the eagerness of the pursuer being eluded, he returned home. Gerbert then, quickening his pace, arrived at the seacoast. Here, by his incantations, he called up the devil, and made an agreement with him to be under his dominion forever, if he would defend him from the Saracen, 
who was again pursuing, and transport him to the opposite coast. This was accordingly done. Probably some may regard all this as a fiction, because the vulgar are used to undermine the fame of scholars, saying that the man who excels in any admirable science holds converse with the devil. Of this, Boethius, in his book on the Consolation of Philosophy, complains, and affirms that he had the discredit of such practices on account of his ardent love of literature, as if he had polluted his knowledge by detestable arts for the sake of ambition. It was hardly likely, says he, that I, whom you dress up with such excellence as almost to make me like God, should catch at the protection of the vilest spirits. But it is in this point that we approach nearest to a connection with them, in that we are instructed in your learning and educated in your customs. So far Boethius. The singular choice of Gerbert's death confirms in me the belief of his league with the devil. Else, when dying, as we shall relate hereafter, why should he, gladiator-like, maim his own person, unless conscious of some unusual crime? Accordingly, in an old volume which accidentally fell into my hands, wherein the names and years of all the popes are entered, I found written to the following purport, Sylvester, who was also called Gerbert, ten months. This man made a shameful end. Gerbert, returning into Gaul, became a public professor in the schools, and had as brother philosophers and companions of his studies Constantine, abbot of the monastery of St. Maximin near Orléans, to whom he addressed the rules of the abacus, and Ethelbald, bishop, as they say, of Winterberg, who gave him proof of ability in a letter which he wrote to Gerbert on a question concerning the diameter in Macrobius, and in some other points. He had as pupils, of exquisite talents and noble origin, Robert, son of Hugh, surnamed Capet, and Otho, son of the Emperor Otho. Robert, afterwards King of France, made a suitable return to his master, and appointed him Archbishop of Reims. In that church are still extant, as proofs of his science, a clock constructed on mechanical principles, and a hydraulic organ in which the air escaping in a surprising manner by the force of heated water fills the cavity of the instrument and the brazen pipes emit modulated tones through the multifarious apertures. The king himself, too, was well skilled in sacred music and in this and many other respects a liberal benefactor to the church. Moreover, he composed that beautiful sequence, The Grace of the Holy Spirit Be With Us, and the response, He hath joined together Judah and Jerusalem together with more, which I should have pleasure in relating, were it not irksome to others to hear. Otho, emperor of Italy after his father, made Gerbert archbishop of Ravenna, and finally Roman pontiff. He followed up his fortune so successfully by the assistance of the devil that he left nothing unexecuted which he had once conceived. The treasures formerly buried by the inhabitants he discovered by the art of necromancy, and, removing the rubbish, applied to his own lusts. Thus viciously disposed are the wicked towards God, and thus they abuse his patience, though he had rather that they repent than perish. At last he found where his master would stop, and, as the proverb says, in the manner as one crow picks out another crow's eyes, while endeavoring to oppose his attempts with art like his own. There was a statue in the Campus Martius near Rome, I know not whether of brass or iron, having the forefinger of the right hand extended, and on the head was written, Strike here. The men of former times, supposing that this should be understood as if they might find a treasure there, had battered the harmless statue by repeated strokes of a hatchet. But Gerbert convicted them of error by solving the problem in a very different manner marking where the shadow of the finger fell at noonday when the sun was on the meridian, he there placed a post, and at night proceeded thither, attended only by a servant carrying a lantern. The earth opening by means of his accustomed arts displayed to them a spacious entrance. They see before them a vast palace with golden walls, golden roofs, 
everything of gold, golden soldiers amusing themselves, as it were, with golden dice, a king of the same metal at table with his queen, delicacies set before them and servants waiting, vessels of great weight and value where the sculpture surpassed nature herself. In the inmost part of the mansion, a carbuncle of the finest quality, though small in appearance, dispelled the darkness of night. In the opposite corner stood a boy, holding a bow bent and the arrow drawn to the head. While the exquisite art of everything ravished the eyes of the spectators, there was nothing which might be handled, though it might be seen, for immediately if anyone stretched forth his hand to touch anything, all these figures appeared to rush forward and repel such presumption. Alarmed at this, Gerbert repressed his inclination, but not so the servant. He endeavored to snatch off from a table a knife of admirable workmanship, supposing that in booty of such magnitude so small a theft could hardly be discovered. In an instant, the figures all starting up with loud clamor, the boy let fly his arrow at the carbuncle, and in a moment all was in darkness. And if the servant had not, by the advice of his master, made the utmost despatch in throwing back the knife, they would have both suffered severely. In this manner, their boundless avarice unsatiated, they departed, the lantern directing their steps. That he performed such things by unlawful devices is the generally received opinion. Yet, however, if anyone diligently investigate the truth, he will see that even Solomon, to whom God himself had given wisdom, was not ignorant of these arts. For, as Josephus relates, he, in conjunction with his father, buried vast treasures in coffers which were hidden, as he says, in a kind of necromantic manner underground. Neither was Hyrcanus, celebrated for his skill in prophecy and his valor, who, to ward off the distress of a siege, dug up, by the same art, three thousand talents of gold from the sepulchre of David, and gave part of them to the besiegers, with the remainder building a hospital for the reception of strangers. But Herod, who would make an attempt of the same kind, with more presumption than knowledge, lost, in consequence, many of his attendants by an eruption of internal fire. Besides, when I hear the Lord Jesus saying, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work, I believe that he who gave to Solomon power over demons to such a degree, as the same historian declares, that he relates there were men, even in his time, who could eject them from persons possessed by applying to the nostrils of the patient a ring having the impression pointed out by Solomon, I believe, I say, that he could give also the same science to this man. But I do not affirm that he did give it. But leaving these matters to my readers, I shall relate what I recollect having heard when I was a boy from a certain monk of our house, a native of Aquitaine, a man in years, and a physician by profession. When I was seven years old, said he, despising the mean circumstances of my father, a poor citizen of Barcelona, I surmounted the snowy Alps and went into Italy. There, as was to be expected in a boy of that age, having to seek my daily bread in great distress, I paid more attention to the food of my mind than of my body. As I grew up, I eagerly viewed many of the wonders of that country and impressed them on my memory. Among others, I saw a perforated mountain, beyond which the inhabitants supposed the treasures of Octavian were hidden. Many persons were reported to have entered into these caverns for the purpose of exploring them, and to have there perished, being bewildered by the intricacy of the ways. But, as hardly any apprehension can restrain avaricious minds from their intent, I, with my companions, about twelve in number, meditated an expedition of this nature, either for the sake of plunder or through curiosity. Imitating, therefore, the ingenuity of Daedalus, who brought Theseus out of the labyrinth by a conducting clue, we also, carrying a large ball of thread, fixed a small post at the entrance. Tying the end of the thread to it and lighting lanterns, lest darkness as well as intricacies should obstruct us, we unrolled the clue, and fixing a post at every mile, we proceeded on our journey along the caverns of the mountain in the best manner we were able. Everything was dark and full of horrors, 
The bats, flitting from holes, assailed our eyes and faces. The path was narrow and made dreadful on the left hand by a precipice with a river flowing beneath it. We saw the way strewed with bare bones. We wept over the carcasses of men yet in a state of putrefaction, who, induced by hopes similar to our own, had in vain attempted after their entrance to return. After some time, however, and many alarms, arriving at the farther outlet, we beheld a lake of softly murmuring waters, where the wave came gently rolling to the shores. A bridge of brass united the opposite banks. Beyond the bridge were seen golden horses of great size, mounted by golden riders, and all those other things which are related of Gerbert. The midday beams of Phoebus darting upon them with redoubled splendor dazzled the eyes of the beholders. Seeing these things at a distance, we should have been delighted with a nearer view, meaning, if fate would permit, to carry off some portion of the precious metal. Animating each other in turn, we prepared to pass over the lake. All our efforts, however, were vain, for as soon as one of the company, more forward than the rest, had put his foot on the hither edge of the bridge, immediately, wonderful to hear, it became depressed, and the farther edge was elevated, bringing forward a rustic of brass with a brazen club, with which, dashing the waters, he so clouded the air as completely to obscure both the day and the heavens. The moment the foot was withdrawn, peace was restored. The same was tried by many of us, with exactly the same result. Despairing, then, of getting over, we stood there some little time, and, as long as we could, at least glutted our eyes with the gold. Soon after, returning by the guidance of the thread, we found a silver dish, which, being cut in pieces and distributed in morsels, only irritated the thirst of our avidity without allaying it. Consulting together the next day, we went to a professor of that time who was said to know the unutterable name of God. When questioned, he did not deny his knowledge, adding that so great was the power of that name that no magic, no witchcraft could resist it. Hiring him at a great price, fasting and confessed, he led us, prepared in the same manner, to a fountain. Taking up some water from it in a silver vessel, he silently traced the letters with his fingers until we understood by our eyes what was unutterable with our tongues. We then went confidently to the mountain, but we found the farther outlet beset, as I believe, with devils, hating, forsooth, the name of God because it was able to destroy their inventions. In the morning, a Jew necromancer came to me, excited by the report of our attempt, and, having inquired into the matter, when he heard of our want of enterprise, "'You shall see,' said he, venting his spleen with loud anger, "'how far the power of my art can prevail.' And, immediately entering the mountain, he soon after came out again, bringing, as proof of his having passed the lake, many things which I had noted beyond it. Indeed, some of that most precious dust which turned everything that it touched into gold. Not that it was really so, but only retained this appearance until washed with water. For nothing affected by necromancy can, when put into water, deceive the sight of the beholders. The truth of my assertion is confirmed by a circumstance which happened about the same time. There were, in a public street leading to Rome, two old women, the most drunken and filthy beings that can be conceived, both living in the same hut and both practicing witchcraft. If any lone stranger happened to come in their way, they used to make him appear either a horse or a sow or some other animal, expose him for sale to dealers, and gluttonize with the money. By chance, on a certain night, taking in a lad to lodge who got his livelihood by stage dancing, they turned him into an ass and so possessed a creature extremely advantageous to their interests, who caught the eyes of such as passed by the strangeness of his postures. In whatever mode the woman commanded, the ass began to dance, for he retained his understanding, though he had lost the power of speech. In this manner, the women had accumulated much money, for there was, daily, a large concourse of people from all parts to see the tricks of the ass. 
The report of this induced a rich neighbor to purchase the quadruped for a considerable sum, and he was warned that if he would have him as a constant dancer, he must keep him from water. The person who had charge of him rigidly fulfilled his orders. A long time elapsed. The ass sometimes gratified his master by reeling motions and sometimes entertained his friends with his tricks. But, however, as in time all things surfeit, he began at length to be less cautiously observed. In consequence of this negligence, breaking his halter, he got loose, plunged into a pool hard by, and rolling for a long time in the water, recovered his human form. The keeper, inquiring of all he met and pursuing him by the track of his feet, asked him if he had seen an ass. He replied that he himself had been an ass, but was now a man, and related the whole transaction. The servant, astonished, told it to his master, and the master to Pope Leo, the holiest man in our times. The old women were convicted and confessed the fact. The Pope, doubting this, was assured by Peter Damien, a learned man, that it was not wonderful that such things should be done. He produced the example of Simon Magus, who caused Faustinianus to assume the figure of Simon and to become an object of terror to his sons, and thus rendered his holiness better skilled in such matters for the future. I have inserted this narrative of the Aquitanian to the intent that what is reported of Gerbert should not seem wonderful to any person, which is that he cast for his own purposes the head of a statue, by a certain inspection of the stars when all the planets were about to begin their courses, which spake not unless spoken to, but then pronounced the truth, either in the affirmative or negative. For instance, when Gerbert would say, Shall I be Pope? The statue would reply, Yes. Am I to die ere I sing Mass at Jerusalem? No. They relate that he was so much deceived by this ambiguity that he thought nothing of repentance, for when would he think of going to Jerusalem to accelerate his own death? Nor did he foresee that at Rome there is a church called Jerusalem, that is, the vision of peace, because whoever flies thither finds safety whatsoever crime he may be guilty of. We have heard that this was called an asylum in the very infancy of the city because Romulus, to increase the number of his subjects, had appointed it to be a refuge for the guilty of every description. The Pope sings Mass there on three Sundays, which are called the Station at Jerusalem. Wherefore, upon one of those days, Gerbert, preparing himself for Mass, was suddenly struck with sickness which increased so that he took to his bed, and consulting his statue, he became convinced of his delusion and of his approaching death. Calling, therefore, the cardinals together, he lamented his crimes for a long space of time. They, being struck with sudden fear, were unable to make any reply, whereupon he began to rave, and losing his reason through excess of pain, commanded himself to be maimed, and cast forth piecemeal, saying, let him have the service of my limbs who before sought their homage, for my mind never consented to that abominable oath. So, in addition to a fairly complete rendition of the dark legend of Gerbert, William of Malmesbury also almost descends into self-parody with a digression within a digression. Or, if you consider even the account of Gerbert himself a digression within William's history of the English kings, then, with the tale of the man transformed into a donkey, which is told by the monk William knew in childhood as an aside to his story of finding the magical cave of treasure in Rome— we have a digression within a digression within a digression. That's impressive. Oh, and an aside to longtime listeners, our selection for today is followed immediately in the text by the story of the cursed Christmas revelers from our episode 79. But back to Gerbert. How much of this account is true? 
Well, some of the details are correct, but pretty much everything that sounds like fantasy is fantasy. This is called The Dark Legend, and indeed, the version of Gerbert we encounter here is but a shadow of the historical person. So, let's learn about the real Gerbert. My sources here are a comprehensive biographical article from 1892 by Roland Allen, supplemented by a bit more recent information from a book-length biography of Gerbert from 2010 called The Abacus and the Cross, the story of the Pope who brought the light of science to the Dark Ages by Nancy Marie Brown. As that title suggests, there's quite a bit more to Gerbert's legacy than legends of devilish bargains and treasure hunting. Here's the story. Gerbert d'Auriac was born around the year 945 in the town of Berillac and grew up, as his name indicates, in the town of Auriac in the Auvergne region of France at the foot of the Cantal Mountains. Auriac dates from Roman Gaul and indeed derives its name from Marcus Aurelius. Why am I giving you so much trivia about Gerbert's hometown? Well, because I don't have much of anything else to share about Gerbert's childhood itself. It's largely an unknown. Gerbert writes in a letter that he was, quote, aided neither by birth nor wealth, end quote, in his election to the Archbishopric of Reims. He appears to have entered the monastery of Saint-Gerald of Aurillac as a child. He may have been the illegitimate son of a bishop handed off to the church, or may have come from a free peasant family, but we have no definitive answers. When Gerbert was in his early twenties, his abbey was visited by Borel, Count of Barcelona. Impressed by the young monk's scholarly skill, Count Borel took Gerbert back to Spain with him, where he was put under the tutelage of Hato, Bishop of Vic, who trained him in mathematics. This was a good place to learn the latest science. At this time, Muslim Cordoba was flowering as a center of learning. There, the royal library of Al-Hakam II, who fostered the growth of learning in Al-Andalus, is said to have housed 400,000 books in 976. Even if that is, as it probably is, an exaggeration, just a fraction of that number would still be remarkable. No library of Christian Europe at that time is known to have had even 1,000 books, and just a couple of hundred was regarded as a notable collection. So, even if Cordoba only had a tenth of what was claimed, 40,000, that's still more than 40 times the largest abbey or cathedral library in Europe. Now, contrary to William of Malmesbury's account, there's little evidence that Gerbert ever actually went to Cordoba. No account from writers who knew him asserts it, and it seems to first show up as a claim a couple of decades after Gerbert's death. And it is Cordoba and not Seville, as William has it, that Gerbert is first linked to. But he didn't need to leave Borel's lands in what is now Catalonia to encounter Islamic scholarship. Politically in Spain, there was a detente at the time between Christian and Muslim powers, and there was considerable intellectual exchange between them in the 10th century, with translations of various texts passing back and forth. Cordoba was also receiving the books of the scholars of Baghdad, who were working with both Greek texts lost in the West and concepts spreading from India, and then those ideas find a vector of transmission into Western Europe through Gerbert. And that is his principal legacy. He is Gerbert the great teacher and scholar, at least up until the emergence of the dark legend. Indeed, his next position comes just a couple of years into his time with Count Borel. He accompanied his lord on a visit to Rome, where he impressed the Pope with his learning, and the Pope told the Holy Roman Emperor Otto I, uh, that's the Otho of William's text, about this bright young monk, and Otto quickly recruited Gerbert as tutor to his son, Otto II. At Otto's court, Gerbert met the logician Garamnus, Archdeacon of Reims, then acting as an ambassador to the Emperor from King Lothar, and Gerbert got leave to return with him to Reims, where Gerbert became the chief schoolmaster of the cathedral. There he made another powerful friend in Adalbero, the Archbishop of Reims. And here begins Gerbert's other legacy, and quite possibly the origin of the dark legend. Now, William actually acknowledges that simple people often think that anyone with scientific knowledge is trafficking in devilry, 
and he has to make a special argument that with Gerbert, it's really true that his horrible death proves it. And this certainly makes it easy to think that the dark legend is simply a product of medieval anti-intellectualism. But William's own account points to how this probably isn't the case. For one, his framing shows that the view of the learned, uh, people who would be writing down learned accounts, is that the idea that science is indistinguishable from the occult is something peasants think, and we know better. So such a writer would be unlikely to perpetuate such a legend unless there was some other reason for it. It's also worth pointing out that while Gerbert learns magical arts and presumably the method for summoning the devil on his Spanish sojourn, he doesn't actually get any of his knowledge from the devil. His deal with the devil is for protection from the other master magician, so knowledge doesn't come from the devil. At worst, it might lead one to the devil. And in a sense, that is one way of describing what happened to the historical Gerbert. Because while he is famous as a scholar and mathematician, that reputation led him into becoming a political operative. And it's the powerful political enemies he made in his life that are most likely responsible for the creation of the dark legend, slandering and attacking Gerbert right at the heart of the most positive aspects of his reputation. I'm going to come back to those positive aspects, uh, Gerbert as a scientist, in our next episode, because there's some interesting points about medieval mathematics we can talk about, as well as a whole different version of the dark legend to hear. So we will have Gerbert part two. But for now, we'll focus on Gerbert as a man of worldly action. Even as a scholar, Gerbert's interests were practical rather than contemplative. He's interested in mathematics and mechanics, as well as questions of law and governance, but he makes virtually no contributions to theology and was generally uninterested in spiritual or metaphysical debates. And really, many of his students at Reims were training not to become great pastors or preachers or theologians, but ministers and secretaries and accounts keepers for lords and princes. And, of course, Gerbert had taught some of those lords and princes as well. His former pupil, Otto II, now risen to be Holy Roman Emperor himself, appoints Gerbert the schoolmaster of Reims to become the abbot of Bobbio, an abbey in northern Italy near Pavia, and not merely an abbey. Bobbio came with its own seigneury as well. It was, in essence, a kind of corporate lord of the realm, and was expected to fulfill the duties of any land-holding lord, including maintaining and providing a fighting force to fight for the emperor. And given that Otto was gearing up for war with the Saracens, this appointment shows his confidence in Gerbert as an administrator. But Bobbio really put Gerbert to the test. He faced two major challenges. First, his predecessor had largely despoiled the abbey of its possessions and leased away much of its land in corrupt deals with local nobles and bishops. And one of Gerbert's first tasks was getting that land back in legal battles with his neighbors, which did not make him any friends in the higher social circles of northern Italy. Indeed, one of those bishops was Peter of Pavia, who is very soon to become Pope John XIV, not an office you want to be held by someone you've made an enemy of. Secondly, Gerbert was an outsider, a Frenchman coming from the reformed Cluniac monasteries of the Northwest who faced a significant culture clash between the rigorous monastic order and governance he was used to and what Roland Allen describes as, quote, the laxity of the Italian church, end quote. So he faced resistance and rebellion from his own monks as well. Emperor Otto II dies suddenly from illness, probably malaria, in 983, leaving Gerbert without his primary patron and with a hostile pope in Rome. Almost immediately, his monks and the abbey's soldiers mutiny against him, and he is forced to flee back to Reims, having resided at Bobbio for less than a full year. It should be noted that even with all these enemies, no one accuses Gerbert of heresy or witchcraft or necromancy or anything of the kind. What we do learn about Gerbert in this episode is that he is, if anything, so dedicated to truth and order that he sacrifices diplomatic finesse. 
He is such a righteous, uh, maybe even self-righteous crusader for getting what is rightfully his abbey's property back that he doesn't care whose toes he steps on or what bridges he burns. Uh, And he's not doing this for selfish reasons, but because he sees this as his duty to the abbey community. Not only did he tick off his influential neighbors by pointing out the corruption by which they got all of these land leases, he also challenged other imperial officials who also got sweetheart deals from the old abbot, which is why, after Otto II's death, he gets no help from the imperial court either. He comes in to clean house and to do things the right and proper way, and everyone hates him for it. One of Gerbert's letters from January of 985 captures this moment quite well. This letter was written while Gerbert was still nominally abbot of Bobbio, but residing in exile in France and serving, it seems, as agent and spy for the Empress Theophano, the Byzantine widow of Otto II, who was then reigning in the name of her three-year-old son, Otto III. She was not particularly popular, and Henry, Duke of Bavaria, had already attempted to seize the regency from her the year before, so she was someone who especially needed some eyes and ears out in the empire to secure her interests, and Gerbert, it appears, was one of these. In this letter, Gerbert is writing to his old schoolmaster at Aurillac, the man who taught him how to read and write, Raymond of Laval. This letter provides a great snapshot of the central tension running through much of Gerbert's life between the world of ideas and the world of action, between science and politics. It's also a rather vivid reminder of what that active life involved for an ecclesiastic politician. As I said earlier, to be a lord abbot or a lord bishop meant to carry out many of the same responsibilities as any other knight, including managing and deploying a fighting force. It's a little startling for modern sensibilities to see bishops riding into battle in Old English poetry, but that at least feels of a piece with the legendary and quasi-mythical character of those texts. To hear in his own words Gerbert talking about what it means to command troops brings home the reality of this side of being a clerical politician in an even more unsettling way. The translation you'll hear comes from the edited collection of Gerbert's letters by Harriet Pratt Latin. Gerbert to Monk Raymond By how great love we are bound to you is known to the Latins and foreigners, partakers of the fruits of our labor. They earnestly desire your presence since, in fact, it is public knowledge that for no other's sake would we, filled with cares, tarry in a place of study. For these cares, philosophy alone has been found the only remedy. From the study of it, indeed, we have very often received many advantageous things. For instance, in these turbulent times, we have resisted the force of fortune violently raging not only against others, but also against us. And, indeed, since the condition of the state in Italy was such that we had to submit shamefully to the yoke of the tyrants if we professed innocence, or if we attempted to exert our strength, it meant that a following must be secured, camps fortified, thefts, fires, and murders made use of. Therefore, we have chosen the certain leisure of studies rather than the uncertain business of wars. However, while we follow the footsteps of philosophy, since we do not overtake it, we have not yet curbed all the impulses of a disturbed mind. Now we are turning back to those things which we left. Now, influenced by the encouragement of our friend Abbot Guarin, we consider approaching the princes of Spain. On the other hand, at present we are turned away from these earlier undertakings by the sacred letters of Lady Theophanu, ever august empress, always to be loved, always to be cherished. In such changeableness of things, of sorrow, fear, joy, desire, his son Gerbert particularly asks the opinion of his most trusted father, Gerald, whom these events do not touch, as to what course should be followed. Farewell. Farewell, Father Gerald. Farewell, Brother Irard. 
Farewell, holy order, my foster father and my teacher. In his holy prayers may he remember me, and also my father Adalbero, Archbishop of Reims, entirely devoted to him. So, Gerbert's political career does not end with his failure as abbot of Bobbio. At the end of this letter, he salutes Archbishop Adalbero, and it is with Adalbero that Gerbert finds his next major position, serving as the archbishop's personal secretary, authoring many more letters and negotiating many more political schemes in Adalbero's name. And those schemes go right to the heart of imperial politics in the last decades of the 10th century. Now, here we get into some complicated political history that we just don't have time to get deep into the weeds on. It involves various attempts to take control of the regency of the child emperor, and factions emerge, and charges of treason are thrown around, and Adalbero and Gerbert are right in the middle of it. Indeed, Adalbero came close to facing execution for treason, saved only by the death of Lothar, the French king and part of the faction against Theophanu and Otto III. Then, he faced treason charges again from Lothar's son, Louis V, uh, also known to history as Louis the Do-Nothing, whose sudden death again spared Adalbero and probably Gerbert, who likely would have been implicated alongside his master. For our purposes, the main theme is that Gerbert, the political functionary, again finds himself making enemies in powerful courts. And if Gerbert had trouble with his job as abbot of Bobbio, his next major appointment is even more tumultuous. When Adalbero died in 989, he had indicated that he wished for Gerbert to succeed him as Archbishop of Reims. But many in the Frankish episcopate were against Gerbert, partly because of his low birth, which was thought to be unsuitable to such high office, and also for the strong German affiliations he had as friend to the Holy Roman Emperor, which brought into question his Frankish loyalty. So instead of Gerbert, they elected Arnulf, the illegitimate son of King Lothar. Gerbert then suffered the indignity of being obligated to serve as personal secretary to Arnulf. And just to continue the Game of Thronesness of it all, Arnulf then proceeded to make treasonous plots against the head of the new French royal dynasty, Hugh Capet, and Gerbert was entangled in those, apparently rather against his will. When the uprising against Hugh finally failed, Arnulf found himself deposed from his archbishopric, and Gerbert, who had managed to reconcile with Hugh, uh, luckily for him, as William of Malmesbury mentions in one of the handful of accurate details in his narrative, Gerbert had been tutor to Hugh's son Robert, uh, which was worth some royal favor. Uh, after the uprising, Gerbert was at last elected Archbishop of Reims. Except that those enemies Gerbert had made went to the Pope and argued that Arnulf had been deposed improperly and ought to be restored to his primacy. And the Pope agreed and excommunicated Gerbert. But Gerbert retained the support of the French bishops who opposed the decrees of the Pope. Uh, this legal tussle continued for some time and into the papacy of another Pope. In a letter from this period, Gerbert writes, quote, the strife of arms is easier to bear than the disputes of law. End quote. When Hugh Capet dies, Gerbert loses one of his last key supporters. He couldn't get any help from his former student, Hugh's son and successor Robert, because Robert, or should I be saying Robert, anyway, he needed the Pope's approval for his marriage and so took the side of the papacy in the dispute over the archbishopric. So Gerbert ends up having to flee France and goes to Otto's court in Germany, with Arnulf resuming the title of archbishop of the town that Gerbert most considered home. There was one benefit to renewing his ties with the young Holy Roman Emperor. When the archbishopric of Ravenna became vacant, Otto appointed Gerbert to that position, and the Pope was happy to sign off on it, since that would finally put an end to the tension of who was the rightful archbishop of Reims. Gerbert only held this office for a year, but this time he wasn't drummed out of town, but rather the Pope died, and in 999 Gerbert was elected the new Pope, with his learning and intellect being widely cited by contemporaries. 
He took the name Sylvester after the 4th century pope who had been, according to legend, companion of the emperor Constantine. And Gerbert began his papacy very much as the partner of the Holy Roman Emperor, working to advance a Christian Roman Empire. But while Gerbert had an uncharacteristically peaceful transition from Archbishop of Ravenna to Pope, the patterns of history reasserted themselves. Or maybe just the ghosts of Bobbio and the irate Italians Gerbert had left behind. Because when Otto leaves Rome and returns to Germany with his bodyguard, Gerbert suddenly finds himself being run out by an angry mob yet again. Over the next year, Otto sent two expeditions to Rome to try to take back the city. These failed, and on a third, Otto himself died, of fever like his father and grandfather. Gerbert apparently was able to return to Rome that year, though the rebellious faction remained in power. And there, Gerbert died in 1003, at the age of 57, and no contemporary account says anything about him cutting off any of his body parts. So that's the life of the historical Gerbert Doriac, a.k.a. Pope Sylvester II. Nary a devil to be seen, at least not of the supernatural variety. So where did William of Malmesbury get this outrageous narrative of the magician pope? As I mentioned earlier, it probably has a lot less to do with simple folk having a superstitious suspicion of book learning and more to do with all those political and clerical factions that Gerbert ticked off over the course of his career. As I mentioned, we have a few biographical accounts of Gerbert from his own contemporaries, uh, especially one by his student Richet of Saint-Rémy, and while these frequently extol Gerbert's learning and intelligence, they never mention any connection to magic or the occult. The first source we see anything of that kind in is a text from about 80 years after Gerbert's death called The Deeds of the Church of Rome versus Hildebrand, written by Cardinal Benno of Santi Martino e Silvestro. Once again, we're coming up against some complicated politics involving the investiture controversy, uh, the power struggle between the Vatican and the Holy Roman Empire in the 11th and 12th centuries which in fact was emerging during Gerbert's lifetime. Anyway, Benno was on the side of the emperor's faction and was writing against Hildebrand, a.k.a. Pope Gregory VII, and in favor of the anti-pope Clement III. In order to prove that Hildebrand is unfit to be pope, he claims that Gerbert had made a deal with the devil and that from him the knowledge and practice of black magic had passed from pope to pope up to Hildebrand. Benno is also the first we know of to tell the story of the death prophecy about saying Mass at Jerusalem. Roland Allen argues that the features of this story indicate that Benno didn't totally originate it, but was drawing on an existing tradition that had already accumulated tropes common in romances, and further cites William Stubbs' argument that William of Malmesbury hadn't read Benno, but was also drawing his account from some broader tradition. The story of the talking statue in Rome, for example, can be found in much older classical texts. Bishop Stubbs also argues that William of Malmesbury's account of Gerbert's mutilation on his deathbed is actually a case of him confusing Gerbert with his contemporary, the anti-pope John XVI, uh, anti-pope to Gerbert's papal predecessor, Gregory V, uh, who had his nose, ears, and tongue cut off his fingers broken, and his eyes blinded by the emperor's troops so that he could not communicate in any way, a political punishment that seems to have been later linked to a belief that John was a magician. And then it seems that this legendary reputation of John's blurred over onto Gerbert. My take is that while there may have been some existing legends of a magician pope, uh, some conflated from other figures, Cardinal Benno's hit piece seems to me to bear a lot of responsibility for concretizing those legends and affixing them to Gerbert in a way that did essentially create the dark legend as it continued to be passed down. Uh, and also that the legend had staying power because of an anti-intellectual and anti-Islamic tradition that was willing to believe mathematical learning was linked to the occult. But it wasn't that superstitiousness that birthed the legend political malice created it, and a credulous fear of science sustained it, 
even among scholars who had no fear of science, like William of Malmesbury. We'll hear a significantly different version of the dark legend next time from another of our favorite sources, whose initials are also W.M., and I'll let that stand as a mini-riddle until then, uh, because I'm also going to break our usual alternating pattern and present another mystery word this episode instead of a riddle, uh, since I have a good one that ties directly into our text. Our word is Cleowen. C-L-E-O-W-E-N. Cleowen. This is an Old English word meaning a ball of something and often specifically, a ball of yarn. It has Indo-European roots connecting it to other words meaning to stick together or conglomerate. Uh, Indeed, the GL in conglomerate and glue is sibling to the CL in cleowin and cleave in the sense of to cleave together, and not to cleave asunder which is one of those perversities of English that goes right back to Old English, where these two opposite-meaning verbs had but a single vowel difference, cleophon versus cleophion. Well, they were also conjugated differently, since one was a strong verb and one was a weak verb, uh, which made them more distinct to an Old English speaker, but when English gave up most of its strong-weak distinctions in its verbs and moved into Middle English vowels, Now we get stuck with two homonyms that mean opposite things, uh, which is why cleave, meaning to stick together, is seldom used today and is practically archaic. But the point is that CL comes from the same root behind Cleowin, and Cleowin also gets stripped down in Middle English to just clue, C-L-E-W. And then, in the later fashion for using French spellings for French borrowings, such as glue and the color blue, which earlier Middle English writers happily spelled G-L-E-W and B-L-E-W, those got re-spelled with U-E. And in the process, several Germanic Old English words got the new spelling too, as a kind of collateral damage, uh, including words like hue and true, and of course, clue. C-L-U-E. And this is the form we find in Giles' translation of William of Malmesbury today, the clue of thread that Theseus used to escape the labyrinth. And that specific example is the reason for our more common meaning of clue today, something that hints or guides towards the solution to a problem. It is this figurative sense alluding to the myth of the labyrinth that we now use without any awareness that we're making a mythological illusion which is really yet another kind of perversity of the language, inasmuch as the original clue is all about sticking together, and the yarn in the labyrinth is mostly all unrolled and not much of a true clue at all anymore. And surely there's more contradictory metaphorical linkage there with how we talk about mysteries being unraveled, while at the same time a detective might weave or stitch together a theory of a case. Either way, it's safe to say there's a whole lot of cleaving going on. And now we're actually going to do something we haven't done in a long time, uh, at least outside of social media, and give you next episode's riddle in advance so that you can work on it. Because this isn't a riddle in the traditional sense. It's a problem. A math problem. This is an example of what we now call a word problem taken from the Palatine Anthology a late 10th century manuscript collecting Greek texts, including a number of riddles and problems mostly taken from the classical world. Our riddle-slash-problem is one of several mathematical enigmata in the anthology, and it goes as follows. Boyhood had filled a quarter of his life, his youth one-fifth, a third part as a man he spent, and on the threshold of old age, Thirteen more years complete his life's span. So, the challenge is to work out how many years this fellow spent at each stage of life. Boyhood, youth, adulthood, middle age, and old age. Or, to keep things simple, you can also just determine how many years total he lived. Now, if you really want to try to solve this the medieval way, 
Bear in mind that the writers of the Palatine Anthology did not yet have algebra as we use it today. Instead, they would likely have used the principles of geometry to solve this question of proportions and measurements. So you can try that out and then give thanks for algebraic equations. As I mentioned, we'll get into Joubert's contributions to medieval mathematics next episode, as well as hear an alternate take on his dark legend. In the meantime, you can get more information about this and every episode, including references, at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, and you can contact me there at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. We are also on Instagram at MedievalDeathTrip. For the present, we are also on the social network formerly known as Twitter, though uh, they're making it harder and harder to feel good about contributing to their business model. I'm in the process of trying to actually understand how Mastodon works. Uh, we are there as medieval death trip at medievalist.masto.host. But like many, I'm still kind of waiting for the big, easy Twitter alternative to emerge. Uh, I am happy to take suggestions. Let me know what you think and what you have found useful or not in the current social media landscape. You can also support the show through Patreon which at any tier will give you access to bonus audio content. You can find us there at patreon.com slash mdtpodcast. I'd like to thank our roster of new and returning summer patrons. Thank you, Nell, Braulio, Kelly, Ivand, Alicia, YLB, Joshua, and Catherine. Your support really does make a difference. So until next time... Remember to leave that cursed gold where you found it, and thanks for listening. <laughs>